2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Ebron. That's how you say it in Hebrew. Doesn't it sound cool when you say it like that? Ebron. Then the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he went and he made him king over Gilead, and the Azurites over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and they went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the field of sharp swords. In Hebrew, it's hekat hatsurim, which is in Gibeon. So... There was a fierce, a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asael, and Asael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asael pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, are you Asael? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. 
So Abner said again to Asael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asael fell down and died, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amah, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, and they took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bitron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants 19 men in Asael. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. Then they took up Asael and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. With Saul's death, David is anointed king over Judah. You have one people and two kings. One land and two kings. But that was never intended to be that way. David's full ascension to the house of Israel is still future. There's a period of time before the death of, or after the death of Saul and a period of time before David will assume the primary place as king over all of Israel. David's life will provide for us many lessons, how we can please God. Those of you who've been following along in the teaching of David's life, you understand something, that David has done many things that are great, and he's done many things that aren't so great. Sounds a lot like me, and a lot like, well, I won't speak for you. As a matter of fact, in the next several chapters, here in chapter 2, chapter 3, all the way to chapter 5, there's several different things that are going to emerge rather quickly. David demonstrates some of the qualities that will make him a great king. Some of those qualities include <clears throat> he refuses to gloat over the failure of his rival. David requests clear instructions from the Lord on how to proceed. 
David will receive a fresh anointing from the Lord. David will repay the debts that were incurred by his predecessor. David will rely on the Lord to establish his kingdom. David will remember the promises that he made and he will keep those promises. The Lord Jesus, David's son, as you can imagine, is the true king. But also, as you can imagine, his lordship is rejected almost every moment of every day. The people who live in the world that you and I occupy, there is a constant invitation being extended. Will you allow Jesus to be the Lord? Will you allow Jesus to be the king? But as you can imagine, David's son, King Jesus, has the right to rule and reign in your heart. But because of resistance and because of rejection and because of rebellion, the rightful heir sometimes doesn't rule in every human heart. Clearly, some resist. Clearly, some reject. The next three chapters are filled with intrigue and murder. Chapter 2 contains the murder of Asael. Chapter 3 contains the murder of Abner. Chapter 4 contains the murder of Ishbosheth. Finally, in chapter 5, David will ascend to Saul's throne and to the throne of the country. And with the death of Saul and Jonathan, Israel is a country without a king. And on the stage marches two mighty warriors, David, who is Saul's son-in-law, and Joab, who is Saul's cousin. Both have armies. One is anointed by God to be the king. One is not anointed. Now, obviously, we live in the United States of America where we've had an orderly transition of power for over 200 years. In our culture, in our society, we do not overthrow the government. We elect the people. And if the people don't do like we tell them to do, we throw the scoundrels out and we elect new ones. Now, contrast that with Haiti. Since 1804, when Haiti threw out the French, they have been succeeded by 80 despots and dictators. And the despots and the dictators don't simply rule, they prey on the people, if you will. Other governments have seen constant civil war and civil strife. Dictators come. Generals come, they overthrow, they establish new governments as often as people trade in their used cars. Political and social unrest breed an atmosphere of uncertainty about the future. And so what can a Christian learn from these chapters? Well, we've already mentioned some. But David, like I said, doesn't gloat over his rival's death. David seeks God's mind and heart. The fact that David will seek God's will and, and, and doesn't necessarily enter into the fullness right from the start should tell us something about our circumstances. We pray. We want to know God's plan for our life. We want to know God's purpose for our life. But when we pray and we plan, it doesn't necessarily stop the plans and the plots of our enemies. David's occupation of the throne will neither be easy, nor will it be without bloodshed. 
So in this lesson, we should ask ourselves, number one, how can I know God's will for my life? Number two, how should I deal with leadership or misplaced power? And number four, how can I be a peacemaker in a world that always wants to go to war? We begin in verse one. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. Now, the very opening phrase, it happened after this. After what? After all of the events in chapter 1. Remember concerning the death of Saul and the beginning of David's reign. How the Amalekite, remember, stumbled into camp. And how he claimed that he had killed Saul. He had his armband and his crown. He gave it to David. And you'll remember that David killed the Amalekite. And so it's referring to those events. And then David laments and sorrows over the death of Saul and, and Jonathan, his friend. And, and now the soap opera begins in earnest because David's ascent to the throne is going to be filled with murder and drama and intrigue. But unlike most made-for-TV movies, David's journey begins with prayer. And you should note that. Look what it says in the opening verse. David inquired of the Lord. Do you know why that becomes such an important issue? Because it really does mark the key, I believe, to one of the successes of David's life. Do you want to have a successful life before God? Ask God what he wants. This is what David does. He inquires of the Lord. You see, one of the things that you have to remember, you have to remember, where is David at this point? He's in Ziklag. Remember, this is the place that was burnt to the ground. This is the place where his wives and the children were stolen, where all of the men in his camp were taken away and all of the goods were destroyed. He is in Ziklag, and Ziklag is the territory of the Philistines. You'll remember he left his homeland out of fear and frustration and desperation. David has been living in the land of the Philistines like a Philistine. And you know what he's wondering? He's wondering if it's time to go home. You know why this becomes important for me and it, it comes important for you. If you've ever been in a circumstance where you were in a place where you didn't belong with people that you didn't belong with in circumstances that were outside the plan and the purpose of God and all of a sudden remember why he's there to begin with because he was mercilessly hounded by Saul. But Saul is dead. And there's no reason why he shouldn't go home. And so he prays. Lord, I've, I'm in the land of the Philistines living like a Philistine and, and I want to go home. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you didn't belong and you cried out to God and you said, Lord, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be in this place anymore and I don't want to be in this position anymore. It shouldn't come as any surprise to see the very brief response that God gives. Go up. Don't be surprised when you cry out to God and you say, Lord, I want to go home. And the Lord says, go home. I have a place for you. I'm still your heavenly father. I love you and I'm willing to forgive you. 
David desires to hear from the Lord and David desires to hear God's voice and to know God's will. And this becomes the opening part because the Lord will answer David. The priest of Israel is still with David. Now remember his name is Abiathar. And David was anointed king by Samuel long before Saul's death. And remember, David is no usurper or pretender to the throne. David is God's choice to be the ruler in Israel. And Abner cannot make that same claim. Abner has made Ishbosheth the king in violation of God's will. Ishbosheth is a son of Saul, but in a very real sense, so is David. David is Saul's son in law. Do you remember? Michael. Saul's daughter was given to David as princess, so to speak. Answers to prayer doesn't always mean that there's going to be no hindrance or that there's going to be no obstacle. God is going to move him in that direction. Even though David sought the mind of God, he could not escape the plots and the plans of others. And because he was indebted to these men, it was difficult for him to oppose them. And so the Lord tells David, go to Ebron, which was west of the Dead Sea and south of Jerusalem near Bethlehem. David will headquarter and reign for a brief period in, in Hebron. And David doesn't immediately become king over all of Israel, but he will reign in Judah. And you'll remember, that he has already sent gifts to those chieftains in that particular area. And so again, in verses 2 through 4, it says, And so David went up there, and his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, and David brought up the men who were with him. Remember, it was about 600 strong, every man with his household. So it could be that with a wife and kids, there could be as many as 1,200, 1,500 people coming up. And it says, So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now, David goes to Hebron in response to God's direction. I don't know if you have a Bible or if you have maps at the end of your Bible. But if you happen to have maps at the end of your Bible, and you have a map of Israel, and you have the area known as Judah, if you go right into the middle of the territory, Hebron is right in the middle of the territory of Judah. And the reason why this becomes important is because David is going to launch his campaign from there. Now, I want to ask you a quick question. How did David receive the word of the Lord? Did David hear from God directly? Did a still small voice say to him, go to Hebron? Did the priest of the Lord indicate God's will? You know what the answer is? We're not told. The text doesn't tell us. 
The text doesn't say how it happened. But the people of Israel had basically three tangible methods for seeking God's will or seeking God's guidance. Now remember, for those of you who have been with us for a while, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6, you'll remember that Saul also had inquired of the Lord, but the Lord didn't answer him. And it says, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. In those days, God would sometimes speak a direct message. Sometimes he would communicate in a vision. Sometimes God would speak to a prophet or through a prophet. And when the prophet's messages were given, they were sometimes very long and they were sometimes very elaborate and very detailed. But the third method was a method known as the Urim and the Thumim. These, according to most Bible scholars, were two little stones. One was black and one was white. Some people believe that there were Hebrew writings on these stones and that the priest, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would make inquiry of the Lord in yes or no answers and that the Urim or the Thumim would speak. Now, these were objects that were carried by the, pre- the priest on his breastplate, according to Exodus 28.30 and Numbers 27.21. We don't have to worry about that stuff. Today, we have the Bible. We have the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews says, God spoke in times past through the prophets, but he has in these days spoken to us by his own dear son. You probably have asked on more than one occasion, God, what do you want me to do? God, where do you want me to go? God, where do you want me to work? Who do you want me to marry? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Lord, I need some guidance from you. Well, guess what? The word of God gives us specific principles in determining the will of God for our lives. In in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us to submit ourselves to God. It says to submit our bodies, a, a holy and living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, whereby we will prove what is the good and perfect will of God for our lives. David is trying to discover God's leadership in the day-to-day decisions that will be necessary in order to lead the people. And guess what? God knows the truth about your heart. God knows if you're a mother or a father. God knows if you're a husband or you're a wife. God knows if you're a teacher or a student. No matter who you are and no matter what your circumstances are, doesn't it make perfect sense that you need to hear from God in order to provide direction for you? And so we have that direction. We should seek the leading of God's Holy Spirit. We can seek the leadership of Jesus Christ. We can seek the will of God the Father. The Bible reveals God's moral character, his nature, and the moral principles to help us decide the moral and ethical dilemmas we face in everyday life. We have the Bible. We have the Spirit of God. We have the ability to pray, and it's reasonable for us to have the expectation that God will answer us. Let me give you just a quick hint. When you want to know what the will of God is, ask yourself this question. Number one, is this something that the Bible addresses? If the Bible addresses it, you have your answer. Imagine you pray something like, Lord, is it your will that I go rob the liquor store? 
See, you're laughing because of the, 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 the stupidity of the question. Clearly, the Bible has already indicated, thou shalt not steal. You don't have to pray about things that are already clear. But you might say, well, what if it isn't clear? Well, the next question that you should ask is, how do, is your conscience doing with the question? Is it accusing you or excusing you? Because if in your heart you're asking for something and your heart's going, do the right thing, do what's right, do the right thing, do what's right. And you go, I don't know what's right. That's where you go to step three. Find a godly man or a godly woman who is mature in the things of God. And ask them. And if that mature man or if that mature woman says, I have no idea. Guess what you're doing? You're giving the opportunity for the Lord to speak. The Bible is going to say yes or no. Your conscience is going to say yes or no. The godly wisdom is going to help you think through the difficult issue. You pray. You ask the Lord by his Holy Spirit to reveal to you what the plan and the purpose is. Paul wrote to the Romans who belonged to God to discern the will of God. It's important for you to do exactly that. Hebron was a good place for David to go because Hebron was the place where Abraham and Sarah were buried according to Genesis chapter 23 and 25. So this is a historical city where the Jewish roots run deep. As a matter of fact, one Bible writer says it was an ancient royal city, Joshua 10. It had been captured and occupied by Caleb when Israel entered the promised land, Joshua 15. It was also an area that David had sent gifts when he was on his raids from Ziklag, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26. It was the perfect place for David, his family, his soldiers, and their families to move, unquote. And so the men of Judah, they anoint David to be the king over Judah. And you need to understand something. As we have followed David from tending the sheep in his father's house to killing a giant, to running from Saul, he's changed. He's different. He's grown up. God has used the running and God has used the good times and the bad times and the hardship and the pain and the disappointment and yes even the backsliding and the sin and the restoration and the forgiveness in order to mold him and shape him and direct him and make him useful you probably know that God sometimes has to grow us up before he can put us in a place of usefulness and you may be reluctant to wait for that time of maturation to come to its fullness. But make no mistake about it. Many of us fail to understand that the distance is often great between the time that God puts a dream in our heart about our life and then the fulfillment of that dream. You know, we live in a culture where everything is instant. It's interesting to me that I grew up in a world, I, I know some of you are old enough to remember a time before a microwave. I know it's not most of you, but some of you remember there was a world in which a microwave did not exist. There was a world, I know this is going to come as an even bigger shock. There was a world where there was no such thing as instant coffee and instant potatoes. 
But you see, now you can pour water on the coffee and you can pour water on the potatoes and you can stick something in a microwave and it's instantly done. And that's exactly what we want. We, in our instant culture, want instant character, instant maturity, instant fulfillment, instant ministry. It doesn't always happen that way. Because God is growing you up. God is making you into a man or a woman who will love him and serve him and be wise and be consistent. You see, for many of you, for many of you who have been walking with God, who have been walking with Jesus, the time has come for you to think carefully about the vision that God has imparted to you concerning your ministry and to walk in it. Listen carefully. David, at this point, will risk everything to follow the leading and follow the wisdom and follow the instruction of the Lord. And he goes to the place where God wants him to be. Now, some people look at the text and they're really disturbed by the fact in verse 2 where it says, and he took his two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. You need to understand something. David married two women. David followed the social custom rather than God's plan. If you read this and you think, well, does this mean I get two women? Don't try to sell this to your wife. Because I'm hoping that the wife is going to say, this is God's plan. One man, one woman. And because of sin and because of wickedness, sometimes plans change. But make no mistake about it. God's original intention was always for one man and one woman. And then in verse 5 it says, So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said of them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you've shown this kindness to your um, for you, have, you are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show you kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David's first official act as king, this becomes important, David's first official act as king is to send a message of gratitude to the brave warriors of Jabesh-Gilead. Now remember, we remember them from 1 Samuel chapter 31. These are the men who went in the middle of the night through all kinds of dangers past Philistine lines to climb up the side of a mountain and remove the mutilated bodies of Jonathan and David from the wall. They acted with heroism and great Great selflessness. Some Bible scholars have seen this as a bit opportunistic on David's part, but these people, remember, were located some 15 miles north of where Ishbosheth and Abner have established their headquarters. But I think that the criticism really isn't justified. And the reason why I think that the criticism isn't justified is David genuinely loved Jonathan, he genuinely loved him. And remember, 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 even though Saul was David's enemy, David was never Saul's enemy. 
Do you understand that? Even though Saul was David's enemy, David was never Saul's enemy. I know most of you aren't like me. Most of you have no enemies whatsoever, only friends. The Bible says, beware when all men speak well of you. You guys are so nice and so attractive and so wonderful that I can't imagine anyone ever hating you for any reason whatsoever. It's unfortunately not true about me. There are many people who hate me and who despise me and who would count me as their enemy. But if these lessons have taught me anything, it is this, that just because people enter into conflict and opposition with you, and I, here's what I'm going to do. As, as amazing as this may seem, I'm going to give you permission that you don't have to hate the people who hate you, and you don't have to oppose the people who oppose you. And you don't have to characterize the people as enemies who may characterize you as an enemy. And that's exactly what happens with David. David genuinely cares. David wanted to commend them to the Lord God. He also wants to remind them that Saul is dead. He wants to remind them that he has been anointed king over, over Judah and over Israel. Now, one of, the, one of the questions that I want to also give you permission to do is to ask this. And you need to be able to ask it over and over again. Why is this in the Bible? Have you ever done that? Have you ever read a particular passage of scripture and you just put your hands on your side and you just went, why is this in the Bible? This is one of those times where you should pause and you should ask that question right at this moment. Because as you're reading the passage, I know some of you are scratching your head and you're looking at it and you're going, what in the world is this? Why is it even in the Bible? I'm going to suggest to you, because the Lord wants to show us something, that even though David is now anointed king, this isn't the final step in God's plan. You would think, hey, David, you've finally done it. You know, you killed the giant. You ran from Saul. He's dead. It was always God's plan, and it was always God's purpose that you should be the king. Now you're going to be the king. And look, can't we end the story right now, and all of us live happily ever after? Well, guess what? His journey to the throne, and then his occupation of the throne means that there's a lot more lessons that have to be learned. The reason why I think that this is important for you is because if you've ever asked that question, what does my future hold? What's going to happen to me and my family? Where am I going? What am I doing? I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to bet that whatever God is doing in your life, that this isn't the end of the plan. Do you understand that? That this isn't the end. That there is unfinished business and a future plan. That all that your life has and all that your life will be and all that your life unfolds is probably, you're probably, probably not in the final step of God's plans. Now, maybe some of you are. Maybe some of you are going to walk out the door, get in your car, hit a patch of ice, and you're going to wind up in heaven before the end of the night. God love you. 
I wish it was me instead of you. But I suspect that the vast majority of you that God has unfinished business. And look what it says. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim. Now, Abner, by the way, is the commander of Saul's army. He is Saul's cousin from 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 50. To put it in perspective, that means Saul's dad and Abner's dad are brothers. Abner must have felt that it was in his interest and the interest of the family for the throne to remain within Saul's household. And so Abner may have had good reason to make Ishbosheth the king. Now remember in 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul has died, Jonathan has died, the brothers have died. Where did this guy come from? Bible scholars believe that he was the son of a concubine. That he is Saul's son, but he isn't Saul's son by virtue of marriage. So Abner believes that if he can control Ishbosheth, he can be the power behind the throne, so to speak. Abner may have had good reasons to make Ishbosheth the king, but he's in violation of the word of God and the will of God and the plan of God. Remember, God has said David is going to be king. Remember, Samuel has anointed David to be, become the king. What does all of this mean for us? Again, it becomes a type and a picture of rightful king and wrong king, of legitimate rule and illegitimate rule. This is why this becomes an important picture for each and every one of us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king. He is king by virtue of the fact that he is the direct descendant of David. He is God's Messiah. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Gentile Messiah. He is king by virtue of his perfect life. He is, he is king by virtue of all that he said. He is, virtue, he is king by virtue of the fact that God sent him. He is king by virtue of the fact that he died on the cross for your sin. He is king by virtue of the fact that he rose from the dead never to die ever again. But there are people who don't want to make him king. There are people who resist him as king and reject him as king. And they think that they have good reason. If I make Jesus king of my life where I can't do what I want to do and I can't go where I want to go and I can't be what I want to be. True. Oddly enough, that's absolutely true. Two kings in one land... Two kings for one people? How's that working out for you, having two kings? Where you're trying to control your life and where Christ is trying to control your life. Warren Wiersbe points out how Christians today are very much like the Jews in ancient Israel. He writes, we permit our king to reign over only a part of our lives. And the result is conflict and sorrow. Isn't that true? Oddly enough, there might be a moment of sorrow. And there might be a moment of conflict. But when you give Jesus the uninterrupted access to the lordship of your life, the conflict is just going to be between you and him. And the sorrow will only be for a moment. 
But the moment that you decide to say, no, I'm done being the queen. I'm done being the king. I'm going to let Jesus rule. If it's true in your life, if you're only allowing Jesus to reign over certain areas of your life and not all areas of your life, it becomes an invitation to conflict and an invitation to sorrow. Now look at verse 9. It says, And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, which is that huge plain, over Ephraim, which is the territory, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth becomes king over all Israel in the sense that it means everyone north of Jerusalem and everyone east of the Jordan River. And in verse 10, it says, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. So here's the deal He makes him king, all of Judah follows David, but the northern tribes throw in their allegiance and lot with Ishbosheth, including the men of Jabesh Gilead. Even though David has extended the invitation of friendship and relationship, they have thrown in their lot with these people. By the way, Ishbosheth means the man of shame. That's his name. Isn't that funny? The man of shame. I found out for the first time that the new governor of the state of Massachusetts, excuse me, the new United States senator who was just elected to the Senate seat in Massachusetts posed nude. Um, some of the, 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 the national news carriers carried this photo of him posing in the nude. And I remember asking a friend, didn't that kind of hurt his political career? And the guy said, no. People are celebrating it. We've come to a place where even if you're a man of shame, it doesn't matter. Now, again, I'm not making a political commentary on the goodness or the, the greatness of, of the candidate, but I am saying that I grew up in a world where if you posed nude, you probably couldn't be elected to a public office. But guess what? Everything's changed. In 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 33, he's called Eshbal. Baal, by the name, is the name of the false god. Abner, I'm going to suggest to you, probably changed his name. Because, you know, if your name is the man of shame, it probably doesn't go over big. But in verse 12, look what it says. Well, in verse 11. And the, the time of David was king in Ebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Something is happening. And I'm going to suggest to you that probably that during this time of transition, as the tribal uh, uh, factions are coalescing, David is in Judah. And I'm going to suggest to you that Ishbosheth is probably made king the last two years towards the end of that particular reign. And then it says in verse 12, Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Ma'anim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on side of the pool, the other on the other side of the pool. Now, these guys, 
This particular pool is to the northern part of Jerusalem. There's a gigantic reservoir in that particular area. It could very well be that in this particular area, there is a gathering of troops. And as there's a gathering of troops, the the other troops gather from from Israel and then from, from Judah. It says, and Joab, the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other side on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and they went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followed by Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Let me try and help you understand this. There's nothing funny about civil war. Carl Sandburg observed some time ago that the Civil War, a bloody time that claimed more than a half a million from the land of the living, actually was fought over a verb. Before the war, this country was fer- referred to in all treaties as the United States are. In other words, we were perceived as being a collection of independent states who share a common philosophy and a common concern. We were multiple states collected as one. After the Civil War, the new reference was the United States is in all of the treaties. In other words, there was a transition of thought that took place both in our government and our, and our culture. The Civil War of Israel was very much like that. In other words, is the tribes of Israel going to be a loose confederation of independently operating tribal groups, or is it going to be one strong nation? Now, you're going to note something. The Civil War of Israel started off almost like a game between children sitting across from each other at a pool. Most civil wars that take place between nations, between communities, between families, start off as being something really stupid and foolish. Have you ever experienced a fight in your family that started off over something that seemed so petty, so trivial, so stupid, that you sat there and you go, how could it have come to this? How could this problem have blown up into this war. You know, churches split over stupid things like the color of the carpet. Families split over important issues like respect and trust and affection. The most effective peacemakers aren't those who stop full-scale wars. The most effective peacemakers are the ones who diffuse the small engagements that lead to the, to the full civil wars. And this is exactly what's happening here. Abner and Joab are both generals. But here's the problem. They're both generals looking for a fight. Here's my question to you. 
If you get two people who are looking for a fight with each other, what are the chances of them finding some reason to fight? What do you think the answer is? Almost 100% certainty, huh? If you get two people who are absolutely committed to fighting, chances are there's going to be a fight. Now, the text doesn't tell us how the two groups wound up at the Pool of Gibeon. I'm going to suggest that the, that the northern tribes come in as they're trying to expand the kingdom. We're not told what kind of a competition this is. Does the game start off like a, a game of championship wrestling? You know, do they go, okay, you're going to take 12 guys from your tribe. You're going to take 12 guys from your tribe. And we're going to have a competition. And the one who wins, wins. We're not told. Um, some Bible scholars believe that it was a high stake game of chicken. Now, in our culture and society, we have a game. It's called chicken, where you get into a car and another person gets into a car and then you drive as fast as you can until you are going head on towards each other. Now, why is the game called chicken? Because in the ideal circumstance, someone is going to swerve and you're both going to survive, right? In other words, the first person to swerve loses the game. What happens in a game of chicken when both people aren't going to swerve no matter what? What do you suppose happens? Both people wind up dead. In this massive game of high-stakes chicken... These 12 groups of men from each side are fighting with no armor. They grab each other by the hair, and instead of sparing each other, they both kill each other, and they both fall. So what happened? Did Abner trick the troops of Judah into some kind of fight? Whatever happened, it escalates into a full-blown war that's going to haunt David's efforts to build a united kingdom. Now, Gibeon is about five or six miles north of Jerusalem. It's a short walk to the west. If you go there with me someday, the city is situated on a knoll, and there's terraced slopes. One Bible writer says the village itself stands among striking remains of antiquity. Some hundred paces from the village to the east is a large reservoir with a spring. Further down among the olive trees are the remains of another and larger reservoir. More than likely, this is the pool mentioned in verse 13. Thus, Joab was in Abner's territory. Joab was the aggressor. Now, remember, this is also the place where the Jewish people kept the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason why it's kept there, remember, it's a neutral place. The Ark of the Covenant belonged to all the people. The Ark of the Covenant was placed there after Saul ordered the slaughter of all of the priests by Doeg. And so the Ark was a symbol of his presence, and it was an object that the people carried into battle. Now again, there's this massive situation that creates anger and bitterness and animosity. And remember that the reason why it becomes so problematic is because Abner doesn't recognize the right of David to be the king. Now, again, as we follow along in the text, 
it says in verse 17, so there was a fierce battle that day. Abner and the men of, of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asael. And Asael was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. In other words, the guy was fast. So Asael pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Now, Joab, Abishai, and Asael, they're all the sons of David's half-sister, Zariah. So, these guys aren't just simply guys who follow David. These are also David's nephews. And for those of you who remember, remember Abishai is the guy who snuck into Saul's camp with David earlier on in 1 Samuel when they snuck in. And Abishai was, the, you remember there was a spear next to Saul's head and it was Abishai who said, hey, let me take his, his spear and just kill him right now and we're done with him. That's the same guy. Um, and so in verse 19, it says, so he pursues Abner. He's going he doesn't turn to the right or to the left. Apparently, he's, he's running after him, and he's running hard. Then Abner, at least to his credit, looks behind him and says, Hey, are you Asael? He goes, Yeah, I am. And Abner says, Turn aside to your right or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take the armor from him. Now, again, Asael is committed. His commitment is, I'm going to kill Abner, and we're done here. Abner is a warrior from his youth. So Abner says to Asael, turn aside from following. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? It's his way of saying, if I kill you, it's going to initiate a blood feud that I'm not prepared to follow through with. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear. Most scholars believe that he's striking him with the blunt end of the spear in order to injure him, but not kill him. But here's what the picture that the text is giving us. That Asael is, is running as fast as a world-class Olympic athlete. He's running as fast as a world-class Olympic athlete, and Abner takes his spear and stops suddenly and thrusts it into his stomach without benefit of Abner. The impact is so great that it's like a hurricane that takes a piece of wood and sends it into a block of cement and it punctures the young man's abdomen and he drops dead on the spot. However, he refused to turn. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and he died on the spot. So it, it was that as many as came to the place where Asael fell down and died and stood still. Now you have to understand something. Remember you have two other brothers. And what this, what this is going to do, it's going to initiate a blood feud. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, and they took their stand. Here's the picture. The fleeing army goes up the side of a hill, and as they go up the side of the hill, they go to the top of the mountain, they take the high ground, and then they create an impenetrable wall so that they can defend themselves. 
And as they're they're prepared to defend themselves, then Abner from the top of the hill calls to Joab and says, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How will it be than you until the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Here's part of the challenge. It's a situation where tempers are high and bitterness and hatred and anger is at its peak. He has killed his brother. In other words, what seems to have started off as a game has escalated into a full-blown war. And so he calls from the top of the mountain and he's basically saying, how long is the killing going to go on? For those of you who remember the famous statement by the guy in Los Angeles who was filmed being beaten by the Los Angeles Police Department and he made, remember the very famous statement, why can't we all just get along? This is what Abner's saying. Why can't we all just get along? Abner's suing for peace. He's saying, hey, look. And, and you would think, hey, this is good. This is good. But Abner's plea is creating a temporary peace. There's not going to be a lasting peace. Because the murder, and this is the way that Joab and his brothers are going to see this, the murder of Asael is the beginning of a long war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And we're going to read later that the two remaining brothers will kill Joab and avenge their brother's death. And this is going to cause a huge amount of of grief for David. And Joab says, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan and went through all Bitron and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servant, 19 men and Asael, so a total of 20. It says, but the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360. Okay, Israel, 360. Judah, 20. Who's the big loser? If math means anything, who's the big loser? Israel's the big loser. Everybody loses. If you say to the 20 people who have lost their children, well, it's no big deal. You know, in the grand scheme of things, they lost 360 and we lost 20. But that's not the way death works, does it? And that's not the way hatred and revenge and bitterness works, is it? Well, you know, he only insulted me 360 times and I only insulted him 20 times. Who's the big loser? Everybody's the big loser. Clearly, Abner and his men are the biggest loser. But Azael's brothers aren't going to let it go. They're not going to let go the loss of their brother. And the deepest wounds were the wounds of bitterness and, and hatred. Because Azael's brothers didn't just lose their brother. They were wounded in the deepest part of their soul. And their hatred is going to burn. And their bitterness is going to burn. And their lust for revenge 
is going to burn and it's going to simmer and it's going to stew. Here's what we know, that that kind of bitterness and that kind of animosity and that kind of hatred, it doesn't simply destroy families. It doesn't simply destroy churches, but it also destroys nations. And here's what we're going to see in the next few chapters. Saul's house is going to get weaker and weaker. And David's house is going to get stronger and stronger. But somehow, they're going to have to get past the anger. Somehow, they're going to have to get past the bitterness. Somehow, they're going to need to get past the need to get even. It's not going to be easy. It never is when you've been horribly and terribly hurt. But that's what we're going to look at in the chapters ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there is sorrow and there is conflict. Lord, in a perfect world, everybody would be on the same page and going in the same direction. In a perfect world, everyone would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In a perfect world, husbands would love their wives and wives would respect their husbands. In a perfect world, people would have compassion and sensitivity. They would extend mercy and grace to one another. But Lord, we know that we don't live in a perfect world. We know that selfishness and ambition and stupidity will sometimes cause us to do things that aren't honoring and pleasing to you. And we say things and we do things and it hurts our family and it hurts our church and it hurts our country. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we begin to look at the life of David and the character of David and how he responds in different circumstances, how he cries out to you and how he inquires of you and then he's willing to listen to you and then obey you, that, Lord, we know that we have a king who loves us, who is all wise and who's all good. And that we can trust the king's judgment. And we can trust the king's mercy. And we can trust the king's love. And Lord, I pray for, for that person or that family who is suffering under a great deal of drama and pain. Lord, I pray that you would speak healing. Lord, I pray that if ever there was a time to lay aside the hatred and the bitterness, it's now. If ever there was a time to work for a future that includes a rightful ruler and a glorious king, that it would be now. And so again, Lord, we commit these things to you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be content to just simply read what it says and even know what it says. But that, Lord, we would begin to ask and answer the question, what does this mean to me? What does this mean for my life and my family? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.